Time is relative. It could be your friend or it can be your enemy. Fighter pilots talk about the OODA loop. It's the idea that even though you may be a better pilot flying a better airplane, if I see you first, if I act first, quickly, decisively, and aggressively, I win. Time was my friend. Time was your enemy because I was smarter and I was faster. We recently talked with Dr. Will Roper. He's the Air Force's Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics. He's a firm believer that even if we have the best ideas, technology, and weapons in the world, if they're stuck for years in conference rooms or on drawing boards or in testing, by the time the warfighter gets their hands on them, they're of little or no use. The threats have changed. Technology has changed. Even the airman who requested the weapon in the first place has long since moved on. This waterfall method of acquisition may have worked in a time when major technology advances occurred over years, if not decades. But in today's world of almost daily technological shift, it's often a recipe for a big, expensive failure. We have to do things differently. We have to move smarter. We have to move faster. Ironically, while the Air Force is the service that looks persistently forward, the recipe for success in acquisitions can be found in our past. A while back, we interviewed Dr. Richard Joseph, the Air Force chief scientist, and he pointed out that the Pentagon, a massive structure, was envisioned, designed, and completed in just 18 months, in 1943. Today, we'd be lucky to get it finished in 18 years. That same year, the P-51 fighter was saving bomber crews and turning the tide against the Luftwaffe after going from contract to prototype in just 102 days. Dr. Roper is embracing these past lessons that agile acquisition, prototyping, failing at the beginning instead of at the end. This is not something new. It's actually in our Air Force DNA. We just have to remember who we are. So in the spirit of moving faster and smarter, let's dive right in with Dr. Will Roper. I'm Joe Eddins, and this is the Airman Podcast. This time a year ago, I would have said, you know, space and cyber used to be just kind of an add-on thing to talk about. Now it's foundational to everything. But really, acquisitions reform is the foundation that everything is being built on. Maybe you can address how that's so integral to where the Air Force is going. Yeah, you'd think acquisition reform would be right next to watching wallpaper dry in excitement. And a lot of people told me that I wouldn't have as much fun in this job when I left OSD doing a lot of rapid prototyping. But uh, acquisition reform is exciting because we're building amazing systems that no one else in the world gets to build. So the building of them themselves should be interesting. And the big reform we're trying to do is just get back to our roots as being a rapid builder and fielder of things. And speed does not sound uh, like it ought to be the thing you focus on most in acquisition because we track everything in terms of dollars and cents. But the thing that, that jumps out when you're working on something no one else has ever built before, that you need to get out and start building as quickly as possible because that's when you start learning about the new thing you're trying to accomplish, whether it's a satellite or an airplane or a cyber tool. You need to start the process of real-world learning quickly. And so the emphasis of focusing on speed isn't just about being fast and getting to the goal line, though that is really important. We have to field things faster than adversaries. It's about getting information back into the programs to enrich our understanding, refine the direction we're going, and make better choices. Traditional acquisition just takes a long time to do that, and it's, it's, not, 
It's not that that process is entirely bad. It's good for extremely complicated weapon systems, but, but most things need a different path. All right. So I don't want to go through an entire primer on contract and acquisition speak here, but the difference between the waterfall method and what is being termed today agile acquisitions, DevOps. Now, it's a good question because one thing it's important to get your head around is that acquiring something that's mainly hardware is very different than acquiring something that's mainly software. And I think that's intuitive as we look at the commercial world that software companies feel very different than companies that build a car or an airplane for you. We should see that reflected in our program. So let me give you the compare and contrast between both of them. Both can be rapid, both can be agile, and we're focused on doing, uh, doing both well because we have a lot of hardware in the Air Force, but increasingly software is where our lethal edge comes from. So we've got to become world-class in doing software, which is a big climb for us. On the hardware side, there's an old lesson the Air Force has had in its roots ever since it was created, that prototyping is a great way to acquire something. We, we like to talk about flying something before we buy it, but we don't do that very often. We like to commit to buy something, and then we go make it and fly it and hope it works well. Prototyping is the step between, where you know enough to go work with industry to tell them, I want a plane, I want it to fly this fast, I need it to do this mission, but you don't know how to turn your desire into 100 pages of specifications that everyone needs to be checked off. You're letting industry come back with what they can do, allow yourself to learn as you go, and then after you test, you decide, was the thing you flew good enough to buy, or do you need to spiral again? So we're just rediscovering that prototyping is a lot better than spending three years thinking and analyzing and doing the analysis paralysis approach before you actually get that first contact with industry and discover what they can actually make. So uh, that's a lesson that I think when we have programs come through and field faster, I think historians will look and say that is an old lesson that the Air Force has rediscovered. Software is a new lesson. So software, when I was trained to acquire it, and most of the people working in the Air Force now, we were trained to think of it as a product. The software was a thing that was delivered years from now, and you thought of it as a set number of lines of code that needed a lot of, of testing and certification before you deliver it. And of course, we've all seen over the last maybe 10 years that software is now something that can change every week, every day. Some companies' hourly software changes are not unheard of. And that's because there are tools today that allow software to be developed in a distributed fashion. The tools are auto-checking the software, making sure that different coders' code can work together and it doesn't, doesn't shoot each other in the foot. They're able to synergize. And that speeds up software delivery. And so commercial developers are trying to push software out, get user feedback. So, you know, your app on your phone updates, those developers are often getting real-time feedback. Are you using your app? Are you happy with it? Or is your duration commensurate with what they designed it for? And then they use that feedback to update. And the warfighting analogy for that is obvious. We'd really like to be able to have software go out into the battlefield, get feedback from the users, what was day one of the war like, change it, upgrade it, and be different in day two. And so we have to adopt these commercial development tools that allow us to change software routinely, but change it safely. And this is what we call DevOps. You're developing, but you're developing with the operator. The operator is your metric. And that may sound like it's wholly new, and I did say it's a new lesson, but it's a lesson where there's an analog in other parts of the Air Force. Because we don't just acquire products, we acquire services. So like IT is something we buy a lot of in the Air Force. 
How do you know if you're getting good IT? Well, you're never done with it. It's not a product that delivers and finishes. You have metrics. You look at, are you getting the reliability? Are you getting the bandwidth? Are you happy with your experience? And we use those to determine, are we getting a good service or a bad service? Software development has its own metrics. Like, are you writing code quickly? Are there a lot of deficiencies? Are you able to retire those deficiencies quickly? And so if you think of software development not as a product that delivers you something that you think of like a, an aircraft or a satellite, if you think of it as, as a service where you have a pipeline of coders or coding talent that are continually updating your, your system, making it better, refining things based on what users want, and that you're measuring their output telling, with uh, metrics that tell you, are they efficient? Are you getting good value for your money? just as if they were giving you IT or a service like that, then we've got people in the Air Force that acquire services every day, billions of dollars of services. So the thing we've got to master, we've got to take all of our good lessons from service acquisition, and we've got to learn to put those software unique twists in them so that we know how to talk software coding metrics with developers and know are we getting good value for our dollar. One thing that we saw when we were at Kessel Run is probably Maybe the unanticipated spin-off of this, but the warfighter being involved in constructing the own weapon that he's going to use in the battle space, man, you talk about some happy warfighters. I mean, could this possibly have a positive effect on retention of talent in the future? I think ultimately warfighters are always the customer. And it's a shame that there are a lot of warfighters, a lot of operators that have got a custom to when they give feedback about a system they're using. They're really giving feedback so that their successor or their successor's successor can see the benefit. The idea that an operator could ask for something and get it in weeks is mind-blowing, but it shouldn't be. That should be the norm. And so the operators, I don't want to under, I, you know, a lot of times we focus on the coder. I don't want the operator to be underplayed. That coder has no idea what to do unless the operator is able to say what the next capability spiral is. The operator is substituting the requirement step. The operator's need becomes the requirement. And so as the acquisition guy, it tells me we better have superior operators working with our coders or we're likely to be working on things that aren't the highest priority to their commanders. So one of the things I've, I've asked all the Air Force MAGCOMs is when we're doing these DevOps programs, we need to make sure the operators we're working with can speak for them, can speak for the commander, because the thing we're going to make is going to be in the image of the operator we're working with. We've talked a lot about doing things quickly, and that seems very, very counterintuitive. And I've heard you speak in the past and talking about, yes, it's a priority to be a good custodian of money, but money may be better served if we focus on time, if we focus on efficiency. Talk to me a little bit about that and how that fits into uh, how we stack up against potential peer adversaries. The strategic side of speed is, is simply that we're in a competition. We're, we're leaving the period of the department's history where we've been focusing solely on violent extremists and we've now got to compete with adversaries that can bring the same technology know-how, the same military know-how, and build systems commensurate with the ones that we can build. And that tells me that we're not going to be able to build an Air Force and have a plan that delivers 10 years from now and that's going to be dominant for the next 25 years, like the Air Force we have today has been. We're going to have to be able to keep building, keep upgrading, keep sustaining faster than any adversary we have 
Because if we can't, I don't, don't think we're going to lose dominance today or tomorrow. But because the time constant between our ability to upgrade versus theirs is mismatched, we'll eventually have our, our superiority erode over time. We can't afford that. So we must be faster to compete. And you might accept that it needs to be the most important thing for that reason only. But here's the thing that's counterintuitive about speed. When you focus on it as the primary objective, you tend to get smarter acquisitions too. And if you think through it, it makes sense. You can't be fast in an undisciplined way. Not for long. Right? If you're a program manager and I tell you to build a hypersonic weapon and go as fast as you can, there might be someone who's not connected to your program that thinks, ah, you're going to chuck your cost estimates out the door, you're not going to do any engineering analysis, risk analysis, because you're trying to save time. But when I tell you to deliver fast, you're going to do absolutely the opposite. Those assessments, those analyses, they become of religious importance to you. Because if you don't understand your risk, you're eventually going to trip up and fall. And once you have a big blow up in a program, right, it's difficult to recover. So my experience with telling people to go fast is those things that help you guide your program through the, the downslopes of risk management, you put at a high priority and you must know them. And those bureaucratic steps that are meant to just keep the paperwork boxes checked that our defense acquisition system so loves, those are the things that you absolutely cut out of your program with extreme prejudice. You can't stand wasted time. So the rigor goes up and the waste goes down, which tends to give you a more efficient path to running your program. It also forces you to think creatively. So we've got programs now like, uh, like the B-52 re-engine program. It's a commercial re-engine, very cool program. That came in as a traditional acquisition. When I was early in this job, we're going to go buy it the DOD 5000 way, do 3,000 you know, pages of studies and look at industry concepts before we really get down to working with industry. And now that program's being bought the same way a commercial airline would choose its engine. We're going to have a digital twin fly-off and do prototyping and compete industry competitors against each other, have a lot of data in our hands before we pick the system. Well, which path do you think is smarter? So the faster acquisition is faster, and our warfighters will like that. Global Strike will like that. But as the acquisition exec, I look at the fast path and think, you're going to have data from a digital twin. You're going to have modeling you would never have in a 5,000 series acquisition. So my money's on the faster path being smarter and lower risk on the whole. And I'm seeing that creativity across the Air Force, is that when you tell people to go fast, they got to get rigorous on the things that matter. They've got to get pretty severe in cutting out things that don't. And they start thinking outside the box. And and this reaches back to the concept of failing forward, just simple scientific method, right? Mm -hmm. Make your mistakes at the beginning so you learn what not to do? Absolutely. 70% of a program's budget is once we are, are sustaining it, once we're owning it in the field. So that should tell you that you need to get any failures, any flaws, any things that drive cost or whatever in your program. They need to be experienced early. That's why I'm a big believer in prototyping. It's, it's different than science and technology. That's kind of experimenting in a lab. And it's different than committing to a program of record that you're going to keep, in many cases for the Air Force, decades. Prototyping is a safe place to fail. Right? And the, the big litmus test for this going fast, and, right, and it's still an experiment, right? We've just started all this acceleration. We haven't had those big blow-ups yet. They're going to happen. Like, I'm not naive on this. We are going to have prototypes that don't work. The big question is going to be, 
do Air Force leadership, do Pentagon leadership, do congressional leadership look at that as a bad thing? Or do they look at it and say, thank God we didn't make that a major defense acquisition program that we're now stuck with those flaws for decades? Well, I can tell you, current Air Force leadership believe that finding those flaws and prototyping is a good thing. And we are going to be fierce defenders of those programs in this town and, and, and over on the hill. The thing we've got to, got to explain in plain English is that by finding them there, we didn't get committed to the big cost, which is when we move into production and sustainment. So find it early, fix it if you can. If not, terminate and move on. And this, uh, this also comes back to the sustainment part that you were talking mm -hmm. about is that this is how most programs kind of go, I guess, is you're taking delivery of a new system, yet you've got the ones that are carrying out the mission today that you have to maintain sustainment. The thing that, that you see almost immediately when you come into the Air Force and you've done development or production for most of your career, and now there are a lot of sustainment programs, is you realize there's no one in the Air Force who's responsible for improving the technology in the entire sustainment enterprise. We, we, we've got something that's responsible for doing that in development. That's called our research laboratory. It's responsible for making new technologies that every program gets to benefit from. But that's for new programs. There, there's no program, there's no office, there's no lab that does that for depots where we repair planes. And so one of the things that was really clear that we needed to create a new program executive officer who's just responsible for making sure that our depots, our maintainers, have the best technology available. And so some of the things that we've done are, are transition in predictive maintenance, which uses artificial intelligence. We've transitioned 3D printers that can make parts, uh, cold spray repair capability that can replace metal that's been worn off. These are things that we see in private industry. It just wasn't anyone's job to make sure that the Air Force had them, getting them certified for use. And so we've seen great, great returns on investment even in the first few months of this office because all these technologies are shovel ready. We're working on a story about the legislative liaison office. Mm -hmm. and do they have a part in, in educating staffers and on, I mean, I would imagine that this is something that you have to overcome on Capitol Hill is explaining why you actually end up spending more money and end up with products that don't work doing it the old way. So, so far, we work a lot with uh, the Legislative Liaison Office because a lot of the questions that, that members of Congress and staffers have about, are about acquisition programs. Um, so, great partnerships. Uh, those people get us smart of what members of Congress are interested in what programs. And I think by the time people rotate out of their assignments, they've gotten pretty smart on Air Force programs and hopefully have a better appreciation about why this business is a lot harder than it looks. I would say right now we're really fortunate to have uh, a Congress, members of Congress and staffers who are pretty acquisition savvy, who are strong believers in keeping the dominance of the military and our Air Force, and that have seen the acquisition system because of all of the statutes and regulations continually fail to keep up with a world that's changing rapidly. So the authorities that we're using to speed things up have been granted to us by Congress. And here's a, here's a secret. They don't actually give us a ton of truly new authority. The Section 804 authority, which I love talking about. I love talking about our 804 program. Yeah, no, we're going to get inside baseball here. You're going to have to explain these two. So Section 804 is an authority that Congress passed. And if you boil it down, it says, it says, Department, we're giving you two new authorities 
to do acquisition. One is a prototyping authority and one's fielding. Prototyping allows you to tailor your acquisition plan, uh, not worry about extreme documentation, learn by doing, which is separate from deciding to go buy that thing. And the fielding authority says, if it's something you can go get out in the field in less than five years, go buy it and get it fielded as quickly as possible. We've been using these two authorities to take programs that would have normally gone through traditional acquisition and speed them up by tailoring out all the steps that are unnecessary. Just think of like a, a you know, a tailored suit fits better than a store-bought suit. It's, it's no less a suit, it just fits better to the needs of the person wearing it. That's what tailored acquisition feels like. It's like a tailored suit fits the body of the program perfectly. Well, here's the secret. The, the authorities to tailor reside in traditional acquisition too. There's almost nothing that's new in the 804 authority. I'd have to go into the acquisition weeds to explain it, so it's not important to understand. But why do our 804 programs look so different than traditional acquisition? And so if you step back from them and you say it's not an authority difference, it's a culture difference, right? We had the ability to do it, but it wasn't clear that Congress would support us if we started doing things differently. And by passing new legislation that says do things differently, it encourages people to take the risk and take the step. So I'm using the 804 authority not because it's the only way to speed up acquisition. We have just as many tailored traditional programs now. People realizing, wait a second, I don't have to be something designated as a special acquisition to do things special in my program. I can be as special as I've got the daring instinct to be. But we've used 804 to encourage the culture change, to encourage program managers to step back from their programs and say, what am I doing that's not necessary? Or what things could I be doing differently to speed up? And when someone says, hey, you're taking a risk, I know that I've got the top cover from the Air Force and from Congress to take that risk if it's smart. And because we have such great talent in the Air Force, we have smart people managing programs, that talent is being unchanged and is thriving with the reins in their hands. So if our experiment works and we end up speeding up acquisition, I don't think people are going to talk about the special authority Congress granted us, even though we're very happy about it. I don't think they're going to talk about the fact that uh, we started doing a lot of prototyping. I think they're going to talk about that we put the reins of programs back in program managers' hands. And when we did that, because of the talent and training that we have in Air Force acquisition, those people took the reins and they ran. You're in the bubble all day long, but do you ever once in a while kind of step back and say, this is a tectonic shift. Mm -hmm. All the planets have aligned here perfectly. You've got top cover from the chief of staff and the secretary, and you've got people on the Hill that want to play ball this way. Does it feel like a really huge point in Air Force history to That's you? That's why I enjoy coming to work each day. You know, I, I thought long and hard about, about taking this job because I had a great job before in OSD. But, and I pushed pretty hard in asking questions before coming on board, but I, I knew uh, Chief Golfing from the time he was the director of the Joint Staff. I've been doing projects for him off and on um, for, for six years and have the greatest respect for him. And I know he wants to see change in the Air Force. He sees the world changing. And the Air Force historically has been the service that has taken whatever's new, whatever's, whatever the new technology is, we'll find a way to weaponize and fight with it. Right? And we've been the service that didn't have a past so we were always had a future. The future was our legacy, and I, I see him taking the Air Force in that way. As I got to know Secretary Wilson, I was just extremely impressed by her 
sharing the chief's vision, but having her own for uh, increasing talent and training and streamlining acquisition, getting the Pentagon out of the day-to-day -day in programs and equipping the field to execute. And so when you've got leaders that you work for where you're aligned with their vision and talent in the workforce that is ready to do more than they're currently equipped to do, who wouldn't want to do that job? It's the most fun in the world to do. And, and it absolutely dovetails with the chief's priority of pushing command level decisions as far down the ladder as possible that's to right. be much more efficient. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the different categories of acquisitions and what wings and squadrons have the ability to do now? Sure. No, I mean, the, the theory is push the decision as low as you can with acceptable risk. You don't want to put people in a position to make decisions they haven't been trained or equipped to. But the way acquisition was before the reform, you had to become a colonel before you had a chance to make your first big mistake. And that's not fair. One, that's way too slow. And two, that's a disservice to that senior material leader, that 06, who didn't get a chance to fail at smaller levels to become a better manager, you know, a better risk taker, a better um, uh, strategist in how they approach risk. So the idea is push, push the authorities down as low as we can. We break acquisition into three categories. Uh, uh, category one are big programs. They're the ones that you've heard of. They're the KC-46 tankers and large satellite programs and big aircraft. They're things like that. They still, they still come up to me for approval, but, but, but few and far between. These are for major milestones, and it's not that I'm going to add anything of significance to them. The program manager is going to know so much more than I do. It's really to help that person troubleshoot the political environment that a big program has to deal with, and sometimes in the, in the case of the period we're in now, helping them understand new authorities or tools that they could bring to bear that maybe weren't part of the program when they inherited it. So Kessel Run and now inside PEO Digital, which was a shift that we made, everyone needs to do agile software development. Why should a program have to relearn lessons that Kessel Run has learned? So that's the kind of work I'm trying to do up at, up at my level, is to make tools and new resources available so that when a program manager come in, comes in and says, here's how I'm going to execute my program, I can say, that's awesome. Here's a new tool, and now you can do it even faster. The Category 2 programs, ACAT-2s, are smaller programs. Those are all delegated to our program executive officers. I don't have a single one at my level. They don't have to come to the Pentagon for any reviews, can make decisions that run at the speed uh, that, 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 they, that they can go. There are ACAT three-level programs. There are you know, hundreds of those in the Air Force, and those are delegated down even further to deputy PEOs and even, even program managers. And I hope in time we'll even think about pushing decision-making even lower. So think about the change. We went from having one milestone decision authority in the Air Force, which would be the service acquisition exec, and now we've got, what, now 100? We've, we've increased our decision-making ability by orders of magnitude. What's smart from a training perspective, right? We're getting people authorities earlier, responsibility earlier, which will make them better leaders as they move up the chain. But it actually increases our speed and agility. We can make more decisions, which means we'll be faster at getting things done. Let's talk about uh, research. And you talk about fast prototyping, um, the things that are on the lab floor. Is there any effort being made to get them out of the labs more quickly and into the hands where you can start getting that feedback from the warfighter? There is. So I, I, uh, I think phase two of getting the reform done in, in Air Force acquisition uh, starts by reminding ourselves that technology is a big part of acquisition, right? 
And so we are working very hard to try to up the transition rate out of our research lab. And that's going to be work uh, that remains to be done at the beginning part of this year. But I can tell you, my experience to, to make transition happen when I was in the office of the Secretary of Defense is that you need to be very strategic about what your high-tech prototypes are. And there's a propensity uh, in most organizations to peanut butter resources too broadly so that you have a lot of smaller things, but they never really retire all the risk that are needed to create new programs out of them. So there's some extreme discipline that's needed to say, I realize I have 50 needs in the Air Force, but I have to focus on five big things with my research portfolio if I'm going to have an attempt, uh, a valid attempt to get them into programs. So, uh, given that was my job when I worked for the, the SECDEF, my, my hope is to bring some of that to the Air Force. And I'm going to have to partner with the research lab and with the Air Force Material Command Commander and the MAGCOMs. There are a lot of people who have to be involved with this, but um, it's something that, that we're very passionate on because we are a service that has had a high-tech lineage, and we want to keep that into the future. The other thing that I have to be honest about as the acquisition exec is a lot of innovations happening in private industry now. And that's different than the Cold War. The department drove a lot of the technologies that eventually were commercialized, right? Satellites, internet, microprocessors, right? These were homegrown. But now we see great innovation happening in startups and commercial industry. And right now our acquisition system is too slow to work with them. And heretofore, that's just been something that we've said, ah, that, that's a shame. But I view it as a national security risk to not be able to work with this vibrant ecosystem of startups that are generating concepts that are literally changing the world. Right? The digital revolution, the fact that most new technologies are highly inspired or driven by software, has to break down the model that you need to be a large laboratory of a thousand people to make change. You can be a startup of 20 and 25 people and change the world. So we need to work with them. We need them to think about Air Force programs, Air Force problems. We need them to think of us as a partner. And that's something we're really excited to do as we move into to pitch day later this year. So what, what kind of technologies are we talking about specifically that maybe would be better to buy off the shelf or do in partnership as opposed to creating ourselves? Sure. Well, a lot of software-based solutions we should use commercial because they're being developed quickly and they, they upgrade on their own. We ought to have a big vision for how we use augmented reality right. and, and virtual reality. And it, it could be things uh, that, that might feel like call of duty on the front line of battlefield, uh, all the way back to the person who's maintaining the system, being able to train them faster because they've got something that's more immersive to get them up the learning curve as opposed to having to read an old school manual. I view that as something that uh, we're behind the times on. Artificial intelligence, we've got to learn to leverage commercial technology. We're not going to drive that technology, right? It's going to be driven by large-scale commercial investment. So in acquisition, we're going to have to learn how to harness and leverage something that we didn't develop ourselves. Well, the acquisition system that's been bequeathed to us, born out of the, the Cold War, is used to the government creating its own technology that then gets operationalized. We're able to dictate the terms that the technology needs to meet. So this is a very different model. I don't want to underplay the difficulty. Rarely will a commercial technology be exactly what we want, but we're going to have to learn to be okay with what it is and see the advantages that it gives and, and work around any potential weaknesses or vulnerabilities it may introduce. If we don't and we're still doing everything internal 
I'm willing to bet that that's going to be a losing strategy just given how quickly technologies are changing in private industry. So you mentioned pitch day. Um, obviously, we're not always talking about with some of these technologies, you know, huge multi-million dollar contracts. Mm -hmm. These are small things. Some of these ideas come from very small businesses. Yeah. So maybe explain to me, you've already had one pitch day, is that correct? No, this we've had a, we've, I'd call it a, a trial run. We wanted to So make, it was a soft open is what we're saying. Yeah, <laughs> even, even softer than that. We made sure that this new contracting uh, procedure that, we, that we're trailblazing, we wanted to make sure we could really do it before we invited a lot of companies in. It's really awesome. Like we're putting companies on contract the same day that they pitch an idea using a government credit card swipe. So rather than have to deal with all the accounting systems, if you have a PayPal account, you can work with the Air Force. So the thing that's exciting about, about Pitch Day is that the, the Air Force can buy products and services. We can't really buy ideas, not, not in commercial startups. And the reason is that a startup that's small, you know, 50 people or less, right, is really living paycheck to paycheck. They're looking for investors. And right now, it takes, on our best days, three or four months to get a company on contract, to get them money so they can work with us. That's way too long for a startup that needs to have resource and investment today or this week at the latest. And so the mismatch in our contracting process means that we've got to work with big started companies. right? They have to be big enough to already have their ideas, already be ready to sell them. And what we want to do is be able to influence a company that's got a great idea but doesn't know who the customer is. And a lot of them are going to want their customer to be all of us as, as private citizens. They're going to want to sell to the world. But there's no reason that the Air Force can't be a partner in helping them get there. So the idea with Pitch Day is to work with companies that are still formulating their ideas, that have a big problem they think they can solve, or a product that they think has an application but they don't know what it is. And we want them to pitch it to us and have us help them find a mission, a national security mission they can solve. And rather than say, we love your idea, come see us in four months and we'll be ready to work with you and hope that they're still in business. Have them leave today in partnership with the Air Force, ready to work with us on maturing it. And the thing we've got to make, we've got to make sure we do is not tie that company so tightly within the, the defense contractor sphere that they can't break loose and make it to be a viable commercial company. So whatever the next generation of Facebooks and Googles are, Amazons are, we want them to have a relationship with us before they're that big. We want them to be savvy about our problems and know us, not because they, we want them to be another defense prime. We want them to be a national security savvy company. And our hope is by being an excellent partner, an excellent incubator of ideas, that more companies will think about orbiting the Air Force before they reach escape velocity and go do big things in the commercial world. So when, when and where is Pitch Day? So we'll do it 7th of March in New York City. And the idea is to make it just like a venture capitalist pitch day. We'll put problems out. They're out online right now. And uh, we have some specific things that we are interested in them solving, software needs, communication and battle management needs. But we're also aware that battle management is not a term that, that small companies here in the Valley and the, the Bay Area. So we're also <laughs> just open to cool ideas. And they'll submit. We'll look at them, we'll down-select and invite a subset of companies to come to New York, and if we're impressed, they'll leave with funding that day. It's incredible. Um, you know, we, 
speaking about tailored acquisition, agile acquisition. Are there any specific success stories to date that maybe you would like to mention as where this has really, really worked well for the Air Force? I think the success story I'm so happy with is that no one particular type of program appears to take the lion's share of what Agile gives. So you might expect a hypersonics program to benefit, and, that, and those are programs that are significantly benefiting from going Agile and Rapid. So. I, over five years of acceleration between where the traditional program was versus the rapid program. And we're going to try to hit the first test of our uh, long-range hypersonic weapon less than two years from today. That's amazing, right? That, that takes it out of the future. It says, no, this is a now capability, but it's now because we're going to go out, test aggressively, be okay with failing, and if we fail and learn something from it and are able to make improvements, that's not a failure, that's success. That's part of the learning process. Those programs most people expect. Most people do not expect that like software programs would fall into the same bucket, but our our cyber programs like Unified Platform, which are going to provide a consolidated cyber tool for all the joint warfighters, were originally going to deliver something five, four or five years from now. They're going to push out their first product in March or April of this year. And it's going to start a pipeline of deliver, deliver, deliver on a quarterly basis. So rather than deliver the elephant at the end, we're going to deliver a piece of it at a time but using commercial development tools that make sure all of those hunks of elephant truly add up to one elephant. General Skinner's pretty, pretty excited about that. Uh, everyone that, that is in the cyber world ought to be extremely, extremely excited because I am seeing our cyber program managers fully adopt agile DevOps for software. And the warfighter, the benefit to the warfighter is that rather than wait, they start being able to get product now. And the great thing about the dev ops, you know, the ops is a part of it is where the next piece we're working on, the next delivery, is what the operator says they need most next. Now, this isn't a statistic that crosses the whole Air Force, but for some of the software programs that, that we had when I first joined, over 40% of it was not being used by the operator. So that says if you're not in close sync with the person using it, and you're going off doing traditional development, you may come back three or four years later and say, here's my delivery, but the operator's needs have changed, the mission has changed, the threat has changed. So there, there's a reason why software in the commercial world doesn't do that anymore, why they do very short developments. And even in our sustainment world, which is not part of the Air Force we, we typically talk about, right? sustainment 70% of what we do. Many of our programs are not developing anymore, they're not designing anymore, they're sustaining and ready to go fight a war today. But there's so many commercial technologies that can make these programs faster and cheaper and smarter. And, so we're starting to use predictive maintenance, you know, have AI algorithms that tell you when you need to replace a part before it breaks so that you save all of that downtime that is required when a system breaks. We're starting to 3D print parts ourselves. We don't have to go out to suppliers if we can make it. So even the side of the Air Force that rarely gets the limelight is getting a lot of limelight for me because these technologies are completely changing the game about how we do them. That's the fun of doing this job, is there is so much talent here, there are so many technologies that are ready to be applied, and coming in, the only thing I have to do is just be kind of match.mil, right? Connect people with tools that they don't have and watch the magic happen. There's been about a $235 million down payment on upgrading the infrastructure on ranges. As far as upgrading the ranges and necessity to train 
Uh, where does that stand in the acquisition process? They're critical for us because so much of what we do has testing involved. And much of the testing that we need to do, especially on complicated uh, aircraft and radars and things of that nature, you have to go do live testing. So it really is time to look at our ranges and modernize so that we can make sure that the performance that we think we're going to have in the real world is really real. Modeling and sim is very valuable, but it only goes so far. So it's overdue in my view, but I'm glad that we're doing it now. The thing I worry about is as we create more and more systems is just having enough time to test it all, right? The ranges are getting pretty crowded, but cannot underscore how important they are for our business. You want to hit on space real quick? Sure. Um, how are these evolving acquisitions processes helping in, in space? I think space is seeing some of the most creative and the most agile acquisitions that we have. It, it's a shame that a lot of our space acquisitions end up being, end up being classified, but space historically was a, a domain of, of pristine quiet. And so you design systems to maximize every ounce of the rockets that they got their rides on. And I, I, th I think of historical space acquisition as developing world-class laboratory equipment. And now as we're starting to think of space as a warfighting domain, we're bringing in the same thought process we do for all the other domains, air and cyber. And that's that, that perfect can easily become the enemy of good. We have to be able to field systems quickly. We have to give operators capability today, which means reaching for that 100 percentile is not, is not a good idea if 95 can be done now. And that, that, safe, that pressure relief valve from 100% to 95 is where most of the speed of acquisitions come from. A traditional acquisition that has to hit 100% bar is likely to have to take more time than you'd expect. It makes sense that you would because you're asking for something that's likely never been built before or that's pushing an envelope or a barrier. Why would you expect that you wouldn't discover something that's harder than you originally thought? Well, if you can't drop the acceptable performance, then you're going to keep putting money and time after until you hit that bar, which is why programs often stretch out to be decades. But now that we have to get ready to, to deal with contingencies in space now, when we hit that hard thing, and I tell the commander of Air Force Space Command, who's been a great partner, you know, I'm sorry, uh, General, I can't give you 100% of what you wanted, but the industry base can give you 95% now. Do you want to field now or do you want to wait? It's field now every time. That is opening the door for creative strategies across the board. So I'm very, very proud of our space acquirers, but I'll tell you, I'm very proud of our space operators as well because almost all of our space software development is DevOps. And we have great operators who are excited to get, to get software into their hands now. So big kudos to them. Um, we talked about failing, failing fast and failing forward. Um, that seems to be the chief of staff's priority for individuals, too. So I just wanted to ask you, was there a moment in your life where a failure actually propelled you to uh, a further success? Uh, if you wanted me to go through failures, this would be a long interview. I'll share a story that is, a, is really motivating for me in this job. When I, before I joined the Air Force, when I was, was new as a government employee working for, uh, working for Secretary Carter, um, I, I was given a little bit of money early on in creating an office. It was just enough to place a bet on one system. 
And so I ended up taking a, a Navy interceptor called Standard Missile 6 and reprogramming it to do ship strike, so giving it a new mission it wasn't designed for. It's about $10 million to do it, and we went out and did a test. And it ended up happening that the Standard Missile 6 was able to do the mission, and it was a great success, and everyone was very happy, and it transitioned and, and is operational today. But I'm very mindful, I was very mindful when that test happened, that whether or not the missile had been able to do that job had nothing to do with me or anyone else. It, it either could or it couldn't. So the fact that it ended up succeeding is just luck. The fact that it ended up getting additional funding and people was just luck because the system was able to do it. The thing I really should have been evaluated on was the risk itself. There was a chance to give us the Navy a completely different capability for a very low dollar investment, you know, to try, to try it out and do it. The risk itself was a good choice. The result that, that I would ultimately get judged on was luck and I shouldn't, I shouldn't get any credit for. And what I see here in the Air Force is that we often talk with people who are risk takers who got lucky. So you get people like me who love to talk about taking risks because we benefited from it. And I realize there's hypocrisy in that. So I'm trying to be very mindful, very mindful with Air Force program managers and people taking risk that they get their evaluation and validation from me at the point that they take the risk. If they made a smart choice, you're a success, you're a winner, you're a rock star. Whatever happens because of it, that's, that's a roll of the dice. And whether you hit two or six has nothing to do with the risk you took. Right? That's just the outcome. That's something that it motivates me because I'm, I feel like risk-taking is it, you only hear the side of the people who rolled the number that they needed. And so I asked myself, would I have continued to be allowed to, to do those kinds of programs had it not worked out? I think the answer is no. And so what I'm mindful of in the Air Force is we've got to validate and kind of snap the chalk line at the time the risk is taken, not the time the result is produced. Because if we don't, we're going to be guilty of the same thing that only the people for whom that risk turns out move up, get rewarded, get promoted, and, and those who don't will be in the background saying, yes, that embrace failure, embrace risk. It, it's good if it works out for you, but if it doesn't, it's just another trap. And so the fun part about being in a job like this is, is realizing that I'm now a supporting player. Right? I'm the person setting up the stage so the rock stars can play and just trying to make new tools, new equipment better so that people can do their jobs at a higher level. And when you do that and you say, and I've got high expectations for what you're going to do, I haven't found that people have met my expectations. They've done better. I think, uh, I think a lot of people would agree that you are helping to make a lot of new rock stars in the Air Force. We appreciate you taking the time oh, with us. Welcome. Thank you, sir. That's going to do it for this episode of the Airman Podcast. My thanks to Dr. Will Roper and all those Air Force rock stars out there moving faster and smarter. The Air Force Podcast is a production of Defense Media Activity at Fort Meade, Maryland. Please check out the rest of our content at the Airman website, airman.dodlive.mil, or search for us on iTunes, Vimeo, YouTube, Facebook, and Flickr. Thanks for listening. Until next time.